All right, I'll take that cell phone sound as a time to begin. Um, we are going to get into our book today. I had more books that were supposed to be delivered this week, of course. Um, and so the Lord, yeah, 25. No, the price goes up because of the, you know, inflation. Um, the, the book here that we have, it's, it's short and sweet, seven buckaroos. Um, and uh, we have, I think, uh, how, many, how many people need a book yet still? I've got 10 coming. Does anybody else? One, two, three, okay, four. Okay, good. So I've got, I've got you know, five extras coming. Uh, you know, you, if you want to, you can pay the $7, but if not, it's also covered by the church uh, for teaching materials. Uh, and uh, we give thanks to God that we can do that. Uh, because of the congregation's generosity, we have uh, some good materials. Uh, this is uh, Objections Overruled. And let's... Um, Let's just kind of go around maybe, or, or uh, I'll just leave it open, um, in discussing apologetics. That's uh, this is going to be just a very general, and, and we're going to read some of these essays. Uh, just to sort of dip our toe a little bit into apologetics, I'm not uh, by any means uh, accomplished in this, in this um, topic. There's a lot that I still need to learn, so I appreciate that we are going through this. And Don, can you look at that? air conditioner back there it is hot um just to make sure it's it's uh really? it's not set to uh set to nap set set to nap i've spoken <laughs> yes, yeah yeah i'm getting yeah i am i am again this is most certainly true um This is true, yeah, yeah. Um, so we'll dabble, we'll touch a little bit with some of these essays. They are a broad range, different authors. Uh, I've met and know most of these guys. Uh, they're, they're good, uh, it's great. Um, apologetics um, is, what does apologetics mean? Does anybody know what that word apolo apologetics means? Uh, right, to defend. You know, if you think of the word apology, when you apologize to someone, you are, you are, you're giving a defense sort of for your, your transgression. You're saying, I'm sorry. You're, you're giving an apology, but apologetics is not just saying, you know, we're sorry, we're Christian. Uh, apologetics <laughs> is giving a defense, giving an answer for what we believe. And you know, today in our, our second reading, which during the first service I, I chopped up terribly, uh, it was quite, quite entertaining for, for you guys. I'm glad you, you liked that. Um, but our, uh, who's got a bulletin? Um, yeah, why don't you read, the, read for us the second reading where St. Paul talks about, you know, the wisdom of God and, and the world. And um, what does he say there? Uh, we, you, you can start at the beginning. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is a great text to have to listen and to hear today as we begin this walk, because 
all of these, all of these men uh, who write these essays in this book, I can tell you wholeheartedly, they confess what we just confessed in the third article of the creed. I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in my Lord Jesus Christ nor come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel. So these apologists, these, these pastors and professors who wrote these essays, firmly agree with St. Paul. And they say, you cannot argue someone into the faith. You cannot come up with a winsome enough argument that someone says, oh, wow, I, I believe, man, you, you made this such a, good, such a good defense of the faith, I believe you. We, we confess and say what St. Paul says. Yeah, faith comes by the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit only. It, it, it doesn't have to be some great and huge moment. That's how that passage is misused when it says in demonstrations of the Holy Spirit. People think faith is this moment where you're walking around, you hear, and all of a sudden you're just like, oh, I believe, right? This huge, what we might call tower moment. And, and as being a, you know, a, someone who's raised in the faith, thanks be to God, someone whose parents brought him to the baptismal font where God gave him faith, I give thanks to God for that gift. But I know as a Christian, I'm often tempted and think, man, I wish I would have had that experience. You know, that, oh, that, that light shine in the moment experience. And there's a lot of stress on that in evangelicalism and in our world, a lot of stress on when were you saved? You know, it's a question you hear a lot and it, it gets tied to this moment and that certainly can happen. Certainly, absolutely. Um, however, a, a lot of times uh, the faith comes slowly and quietly. Faith comes as Christians share the word of God, the gospel, for the Holy Spirit to work through the word, but also with just discussions and, and talking with others, talking about what the Christian faith, what it offers, what it gives, and also the answers that God's word gives for some of the problems we have in today's world. Some of the challenges or obstacles to the faith Apologetics looks to sort of remove those. Oh, I, I don't understand how God, how a God could possibly create all this with his word. Well, we can, we can talk about that. In apologetics, we can talk about how, well, it, it, it may seem impossible to you, but that just teaches you a man didn't create this. Everyone can see this is not, a man didn't, didn't build this. Um, and so apologetics, it has the goal of bringing people to faith with the full knowledge that it's always the work of the Holy Spirit. What apologetics looks to do is to remove obstacles to the faith, just to remove like man-made obstacles. And since they're man-made obstacles, we bring man-made arguments, if you will, man-made apologetics, man-made answers guided by the wisdom of the Holy Spirit to sort of remove those obstacles. There's also a great uh, illusion one of my friends used one time when we were talking about apologetics. And he said, yeah, you know, it's, it's really not our job to bring, to convince people, to bring them into the faith. Right? It's really not our job but in, in apologetics. But, but what we can also do, along with removing some of the man-made obstacles, some of the problems that people have, have put up, uh, he, he described it like this. He said, you can also just you can put a rock in their shoe. What do you think that means? 
Very Become annoying. Become <laughs> well, annoying. Maybe, maybe, maybe. If, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Go ahead. It becomes annoying that to the person that they finally have to stop and look at what they're, what's yeah. going on. That, that's the, innocence. That's yeah. what I meant. Not, mm -hmm. It's you know Christianity is annoying. It's, yeah. <laughs> it, it starts. Well, I don't know. <laughs> it starts wearing on you to the point that you have to have actually have to stop and look and listen and yeah. dig into it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. Uh, uh, any anybody else putting a? How, what do you think my friend meant by that? Putting a, a rock in someone's shoe. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a reminder being that, 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 that voice that's almost annoying, but, but is, keeps going. What, any other ideas? How, I'm just leaving it kind of open to discussion. Uh, I would say that having that rock in your shoe, it always, I mean, just out of the outdoors that I do, it always makes you stop and take a look. Ah, yeah, yeah. Got to stop and take that shoe off, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, good. Makes you stop, yeah. I would say from the perspective of that rock being in your shoe, somewhat painful. Okay. Uh, yeah. So there is suffering that goes along with it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not easy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. I think all those are great, great pictures of that, but giving, giving, giving somebody something to think about, you know, something that in, interrupts their day. And, and that's one of the, the beautiful things of, I, I think, of apologetics and why I like that analogy. We remove hazards, right? Man-made barricades, man-made hazards and barriers, but we also remove them, right? I, I mean, we remove them, but we also then put them in. <laughs> we also are on the, uh, what do we want to call the offense, right? The, where we give people things to think about that are barriers so their way of thinking of the world from a purely what we would call secular way of looking at life. Because there are all kinds of ways in which our secular world is going to say, well, uh, I, I don't like Christianity because it's ridiculous. It's, it's foolish. You, you're morons. And it's like, well, yeah, if you are looking at it from a purely secular way. And so in one way, apologetics removes man-made barriers, but yet then also we as Christians want to put things in people, put rocks in their shoes. We want to be a, a barrier of sorts. We want to be a wall that, that secular thinking comes up against and it has no answer. So those are just kind of two general ways. I, th I think apologetics is, is very good and useful. And then also turn to 1 Peter 3. And 1 Peter 3 is, should be, you should know 1 Peter 3 um, for the reason that it has one of the most clear expressions of baptism and, and what it does. Do we have any Bibles? Yeah, there you go. Um, of course we do. Um, First Peter 3 has one of the most clear expressions of baptism and what it does for us. That's one reason why First Peter 3 should be familiar to you. First Peter 3, right? First Peter 3:21. Okay? First Peter 3, I'm telling you this, so 1 Peter 3 sticks into your brain for, for various things. And, and here's just, you know, another verse that shows the beauty of 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3, 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, meaning the flood, Noah's flood, now saves you, 
not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 3.21 says baptism now saves you. Very clear and very good. And a lot of people don't even know this verse exists. When you bring this up in, in discussions with baptism and non-sacramental Christians, they say, well, I haven't even heard that verse before. Very good. 1 Peter 3 is also very good for apologetics to teach us Christians that, yeah, while the Holy Spirit gives faith, the Bible actually tells us we need to have a good defense, a good apology, a good answer for what we believe. So even though apologetics is not going to bring anyone into the faith, that's the work of the Holy Spirit, nonetheless, it is still considered a good work, still considered something we should be, we should be, we should be practiced in. First Peter 3, um, let's start in verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Here we go. Here's, here's the meat and potatoes. Always being prepared to make an apology to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience." so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So Peter here, what does he assume? Or what is he preaching to in this letter? What's going on? What does it sound like is going on? What do you think is happening to Christians that St. Peter has to, has to write this to them? Preach it. What be? They're being persecuted and they're suffering. And Peter says, that's good if you're suffering for the sake of Christ. And as you're suffering, what does he say? Be ready. Be ready to give a defense for what? The hope that is within you. So St. Peter here, he sees that as we suffer, what, what are we doing? As we suffer, we're defending the faith. Because isn't that really one of the, I, I talk about that a little bit today in, in the sermon and in, in, with justice. That's one of the laments of God's people throughout the scriptures. Job, Psalm, from Genesis to Revelation, the Christian says, why am I suffering? <laughs> why am I suffering and the evil in this world, they get away with it, right? That's what Peter, that's part of what Peter's addressing here. It's because the church is suffering. This is the early, early church. And Peter is writing this letter as a sermon to be preached to the people. And suffering is very much present there. And in the midst of this, when we think the church should be, you know, saying, oh man, we don't have anything against this. Oh, well, you know, let's just go off quietly to our, to the gallows, go off quietly to the lions. What does St. Peter say? Make people ask you why you're so happy. <laughs> why do you have so much hope? We're sending you to the lions. You're about to die. You're about to be eaten alive by animals. And we have these Christians, these martyrs account of where they're going. And they say, yeah, 
hurry up, let's get this over with, right? We, had, we talked about some of these martyrs who suffered, um, Irenaeus, um, uh, Polycarp, some of these early Christians thrown to the, to the, to the lions. And, and remember, in some of these instances, their friends were like, okay, we're gonna break you out of this, okay? So as you're on your way to the Colosseum, we're gonna, we're gonna come in there and we're gonna kidnap you and take you out. And the, and the, the who was this, Irenae? I can't remember, I don't remember my martyrs very well. He said, don't deprive me of being martyred. Don't do that. Don't break me out. I want to give my life. I want to be a witness. And, and right there, he's, he, because he says, if my Lord has given his life for me, I should be honored to do the same. So there he's giving an apologetic. He's given a defense for what he's doing. And it's even for his own Christian friends. So he's giving a reason even to his fellow Christians for the hope that he has. And also for the Roman guards and all these, these officials to see. So this is very real for Peter and, and this early church here, uh, Lutheran study Bible says the date for this is about 67 AD, before 67 AD. So this is even before the, the, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and all that nastiness that happened with that, with the Jews and the Romans. Um, but even as Christian persecution now begins to grow, St. Peter says, yep, as you suffer, be ready to give an answer, give a defense for the hope that you have. So that's what we're gonna do. Hopefully we're going to learn a thing or two. Uh, we're going to look for ways now to give an answer for some of the obstacles that have been raised against Christianity. So that when you are being fed to the lions, <laughs> you too can give a defense for the hope that you have. Maybe not lions, but as you are losing your business or your job, uh, you can give a defense for the hope that you have. Okay, um, the chapters in this book, um, anything else? Anybody want to add to that? I said a lot of things. Yeah, yeah, yep. Yep, yep. So there is this, this side of Christianity that we desire people. Um, because, I mean, we all get it. We all get the idea of being angry and upset. That kind of makes sense. That makes sense to the world. But what we want the world is to see us, like Jesus says today, you are salt and you are light. We want the world to see us and be a little confused. We want our lives, maybe we could say this. We want our lives to be what? that rock in somebody's shoe. Man, why, why were they okay? Why were they okay with this? You know, that, that our lives might be that rock. Uh, yeah, absolutely, Chris, good, good point. The book that we have, uh, if you don't have it, we'll read it, I'll go through the text here, um, but I, I, I wanna read some of the titles here um, that, that we have that we're going to study as we get into this. Um, science 
these are the objections that we're going to answer. Science has disproven God's existence. Okay, we're going to talk about that. Uh, first century people were primitive. Christianity is anti-intellectual. The text of the New Testament cannot be trusted. There is little archaeological evidence to support scripture. The Bible is only a book of faith. The Bible teaches bigotry. The story of Jesus is stolen from older mystery religions. The deity of Christ was an early church innovation. Jesus cannot be the only way to salvation. So first, science has disproven God's existence. This is by John Warwick Montgomery. He is a uh, very well-known apologist, uh, has been around since, uh, well, for a long time. I don't even know how old he is, but he's up there. Um, John Warwick Montgomery, uh, teacher of apologetics and um, very well-read gentleman. Science is not a belief system, page one. Science is not a belief system, but a method for investigating the world by gathering and supplying data. The scientific disciplines of physics, biology, and neurophysics cannot explain the aspects of the world they study. The worst human atrocities have been carried out by atheistic governments. Only God can give purpose to human life, and only Christ fully reveals God. It is so, as one hears from time to time, that no intelligent person can believe in God because of modern science. One thinks of the mathematical physicist, who knows French? How do you, Laplace? I thought it would be something like Laplace. <laughs> My years of French come in handy. One thinks of the mathematical physicist Laplace, who was asked why he never mentioned God in his treatment of the solar system. He replied, I had no need of that hypothesis. Let's see if leaving God aside makes scientific sense. And check out this footnote there, right? Here are just a few famous scientists who are believers in God. Copernicus, Galileo, Pascal, Kepler, Newton, Pasteur, Mendel, Marconi, Maxwell, Faraday, Harvey, Kelvin, Boyle, Millikan, Planck, Heisenberg, Francis Collins. Uh, and a number of those are actually Lutheran, believe it or not. The nature of science. First, we need to know what science is and what it isn't. A problem at the root of the idea that God and science are enemies is a misunderstanding of the nature of scientific activity. Science is not a doctrine or a system of belief like Mormonism or the Masonic order, but a method for investigating the world. The true scientist does not begin with an already established belief as to what the world is like. He or she starts out with a question and an open mind. Is there an animal with five legs? Why do swallows return to Capistrano every spring around the same time? Is there no God? To answer such questions, the scientist gathers information, data, and suggests an explanation, hypothesis. Then he tests that idea by collecting and refining more data. As a result, the hypothesis is either discarded or improved to fit the facts better. A solution that seems superior to the original hypothesis is usually called a theory, which, like the initial hypothesis, is tested by way of still more comparison with the factual data. If the final result seems to work all the time and under all testing conditions, it can be regarded as a scientific law. 
this scientific or empirical method is very different from the understanding of science by many non-scientists and even some ill-informed scientists themselves, as well as poorly educated science teachers at the high school or junior college level, and I would say university level and even grad school level. They see science as some kind of universal philosophy or religion, the religion of science or scientism. For these folks, science begins with an already formed view of the universe, right? There's, that's a good line to underline if you're marking in your book. Science, for these folks, they mistakenly believe science begins with an already formed view of the universe. There is nothing but matter, nothing spiritual. The laws of nature do not permit unique events such as miracles. Evolution is an established fact, not just a hypothesis or a theory, etc. Of course, this kind of thinking is the very opposite of real science. It is not based on open-minded investigation of the world, but on a dogmatic approach that decides what the world is like before gathering data and discovering what the world is really like. So can a true, this is an interesting question. I, I like this, I have this underlined here. So can a true scientist ever declare that there is no God? Of course not. He or she would have to look under every rock in the universe to make sure God wasn't there. Interesting point, isn't it? You know, and that's, that's where he, why he puts that, that qualifier on there too. He says any true scientist Right? Because a scientist doesn't start with an already established fact, takes a hypothesis and tests it. So in order to test the hypothesis that there is no God, you would have to be able to show indeed that you have run every test possible. So one might call it a, a lifelong pursuit, right? If you are a true scientist, you have to be open to the idea that there is a God. But there is scientific evidence on the positive side that there is a God, yes, and that evidence is overwhelming. The universe cannot explain itself. Everyone would surely admit that the universe consists of all the stuff in it. If you don't think so, you've got a real problem. But nothing in anyone's experience is self-explanatory. The book you're now reading can only be explained by going outside it to a publisher, a printer, an author, and so on. The attractive boy or girl sitting across the room is not self-explanatory. You must at least appeal to his or her parents to explain what you are gazing at. <laughs> now, now, if this is so, then the universe itself cannot account for itself. To explain it, we must go outside or beyond it. And that is what we mean on the most primitive level by God. Moreover, any such God will need to be personal and intelligent. Otherwise, there's no explanation for the complexity and rational design of the universe in which we find ourselves. This line of reasoning is illustrated at the most fundamental scientific levels. Here are some examples. Physics. No scientific laws are more basic than the laws of thermodynamics. Sir Arthur Eddington put it bluntly. If your theory of the universe is found to be against the second law of thermodynamics, I can give you no hope. There is nothing for it but to collapse in deepest humiliation. Okay, you ready for the second law of thermodynamics? Who remembers this? Anybody? 
Oh, hey, hey, we've got a, we got a real scientist here. What is it, Abigail? Explain it in English, please. <laughs> How would you explain that to a pastor? <laughs> yeah, what do you think? What do you think? It, it, yeah, it depends what system you're working with. Uh, well, well, let's see if, if uh, Dr. Montgomery explains this. Okay, the, and Abigail's right, by the way. You passed. Parents' money well spent. <laughs> that so-called second law states that with any closed system, the functionality or workability of energy declines until it reaches zero. The zero point is called heat death. That, that sounds like a cool name for a band. Yeah. <laughs> heat death. If we, have a, if we have a praise and worship team at Emmanuel, we're going to call it heat death because <laughs> of entropy. <laughs> the energy doesn't disappear. The first law of thermodynamics, okay? Energy doesn't disappear, okay? But it becomes useless, like a dead battery. The process of energy decline is called entropy. So if anyone wants to sell you a bushel of entropy, definitely do not buy it. This process never takes forever. Heat death arrives in a finite period of time. So, and he's gonna explain it here too, but your cell phone battery is a picture of the second law of thermodynamics. It runs out. It doesn't just self-generate. Energy doesn't, energy has to come from somewhere. Uh, and so he's gonna give a, another example of this. Abigail, you got a good example of this that you can think of? Okay, we're gonna keep going then. Yeah, I mean, you know, money, right? Paying for college, right? It's gonna go to zero unless you put more in the tank. Here's an admittedly poor analogy. You intend to cross the desert in your jalopy. Even with a full tank, the gas gauge goes down steadily as you travel. Gas station after gas station has the sign, last gas station in the desert. You, however, think that all these stations are conning you, so you don't stop and fill up. Eventually, in a finite length of time, your car experiences entropy, or entropic gas death. Now, for the atheist, the universe is a closed system, no God, and has been around forever. But if this were so, then it would already have run down, since all finite periods of time are swallowed up by infinity. Clearly, the atheist is wrong, since we still have enough energy to discuss this issue. Either the universe was created a finite time ago and hasn't yet reached heat death, or energy is being fed in from outside the universe to keep it alive, or both. So what he's arguing here is against somebody who, who tries to explain the universe and says, well, it's just always been here. It's just, it's been here, it's, inf it's infinite. It never had a beginning, it's just always been here. And the scientific argument against that is, no, that, that, that's not possible because heat and energy, it, there, there must be a beginning because it runs out. We, we, couldn't be, uh, we couldn't be here because the energy would have run out. It, it's, it's impossible, just cannot happen. The argument that the earth has always been here is um, absurd when you look at it in, re in regards to the second law of thermodynamics. 
So what he's arguing here for is, is just that the, that the, the way, the, at the, way the, the, the world and the universe works is that there has to be a beginning. The laws of thermodynamics show this. So once you can establish that there is a beginning, right? This would be like one of those little rocks to talk with somebody and know oh, the universe has always been here. And, and then as you read this book again and again and again to get this argument and to articulate it, um, you can say, well, you know, according to the second law of thermodynamics and entropy, um, the way our universe works, the way your cell phone works, it, it has, something has to be coming to it from the outside. Something had to have begun this because we see that, you know, uh, all of the energy sources, even the sun itself, right? Don't they estimate, don't they have some sort of estimate to say how long the sun is going to last? Does anybody know that? What is it? You don't know this? What do you know? Yeah, you're a scientist. A couple billion more years, right? Right, yeah. Um, so the idea that they can figure, that they can calculate a, a heat death for the sun shows that it could not be infinite. Shows that, that there's no infinite heat source. So the sun itself had to have a beginning. Okay, all right. Uh, the middle of that paragraph on page four. Oh, what part of the creed confesses this? Hmm. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker. maker of heaven and earth. And also in the meaning. When we say, I believe that God has made me and all creatures, he's giving me my eyes, ears, my senses, and what? Still preserves, Still preserves them. So you, you, <laughs> you follow the second law of thermodynamics. Your ears, right, not working as they good. As, as well as they did. I'm not looking at, see, Mary Lou, she's got me now. Whenever she gives me that look, I know, man, I'm in trouble. <laughs> I just happened to be looking in this direction when I said your ears aren't working as well as they used to. Um, I was looking at Dick. Yeah, 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 I was looking at Dick. What'd you say? Yeah, huh? Uh, we ourselves experience entropy, um, but, and we each day recognize that someone, something from outside of us maintains us each day, gives us life each day, gives us uh, all the blessings that God gives. Okay, well, let's keep going. Uh, middle, uh, page four. The energy of the universe is not self-explanatory. We need a God outside of and beyond the universe to account for its energy. This entails, at a minimum, a cosmic gas station attendant who has not only filled the tank at the beginning of things, but who continually maintains its essential energy level to keep the universe from self-destructing. Someone have Colossians 1.17 for me? Can you pull that up? I've never thought of God as a cosmic gas station attendant. <laughs> but there you go. With a shirt on that says Earl. <laughs> yeah, right. What's a gas station attendant, right? Yeah. Is that another band? Like, 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 like heat death? Okay, does someone have Colossians 1 verse 17? Read it real nice and loud for us. Okay, there we go. Um, a great verse. Okay. Readers may be interested to learn that in my successful debate on the existence of God at the University College, Dublin, I asked my atheist 
theoretical physicist opponent, how he deals with the evidence for God's existence provided by the second law of thermodynamics. He replied, I'm awaiting its repeal. I trust that he will not hold his breath while waiting. The reversal of the second law is even less likely than the repeal of the law of gravity. By the way, just for fun, listen to the musical rendition of the second law of thermodynamics by the British comedy duo of Flanders and Swan on their recording The Best of Comedy and Music. Yeah, I, I, I don't get it. I, I read it and it's, it, it's, I guess it's funny. Um, <laughs> if you wanna, yeah, go for it if you wanna check it out. It's highly recommended. To the force of the second law, add the fine tuning of our world. The slightest, basic, the slightest change in basic constants would have made life impossible, says cosmologist Martin J. Rees. And consider the general agreement of cosmologists that the universe is finite, which logically requires the assumption of something or someone above and beyond it. Isaac Asimov has estimated the radius of the finite universe at 12 billion light years. I think he's off by 10 light years, um, but any finite universe will need a non-finite explanation. As for multiverse speculations as a substitute for God, even if there were a multiplicity of universes for which there is not a shred of evidence, God would still be needed to account for whatever universes are potentially and actually lying around somewhere. So some, some folks have postulated that uh, there is another dimension. There is, you know, these sort of sci-fi sort of things. There's another dimension that explains the creation of our universe and our world. And Dr. Warwick Montgomery, as a scientist, says, where's the evidence for this? Where's the evidence? If you can find evidence of an alternate universe, of a, another dimension, then sure, I'm willing to listen but there is no evidence of this so far. Biology. Does evolution get rid of God? Does natural selection provide a sufficient explanation of the species so as to make God unnecessary? Classical evolutionary theory has come under more and more criticism in recent years. Among its many problems is the fact that mere passage of time never creates something. Put a birdhouse in your yard for a millennium, it won't produce a bird. And evolutionists appeal to mutations. Sudden, inexplicable biological changes must be regarded logically as little more than word magic, since it provides no rational explanation whatsoever. Cross-reference the similar use of word magic by employing the word instinct. Why do the storks return to the Alsace from North Africa at roughly the same time each year? Utterly inadequate response actually telling you nothing. Instinct. If it's instinct, where does that come from? It should be obvious that even if evolution were more than a theory or mere hypothesis, which, it, which is all it is, one would still have to explain the source of the evolutionary process itself. Evolution, like everything else, cannot explain itself. But the problem goes deeper yet. Biochemist D and J.G. Vitt and Michael Behe have stressed the engineering complexity of the bacterial flagellum. Bacteria and one-celled beasties, however, are supposed to have appeared at the very first stage of alleged biological evolution. There is therefore no time available to account for their development. 
one must appeal to an intelligent designer to explain their existence and structure. Nothing in this world is self-explanatory. God alone, above and beyond our world, is the only rational answer. Human psychology. Neurophysiologist and Nobel Prize winner Sir John Eccleese has argued, if my uniqueness of self is tied to the genetic uniqueness that built my brain, then the odds against myself existing in my experienced uniqueness are 10 to the 10,000th power against it. Karl Popper and John Eccleese, the self and its brain. Translating from English into English, Eccleese is saying here that even the complex physical nature of the human brain falls staggeringly short. It cannot provide an explanation for the fact that each human being's personality is unique, unlike any other. Again, the human person cannot explain himself or herself. A transcendent, superhuman explanation, God, is the only way to account rationally for human uniqueness. Why is God's existence so important, practically? All that we've said so far may seem abstract and irrelevant to daily life. After all, believers and unbelievers seem to live more or less the same lives, get the same educations, do the same jobs, and both end up dying. If we think of human societies in general, atheistic governments like the Chinese appear to run things in roughly the same way as traditionally religious societies, like those of the Americas. But the, the, but the picture is quite different if we take a deeper look. Societies without God. Unbelievers often present the evils of religion as an argument for their non-belief. Racial prejudice and the persecution of the Jews in the Middle Ages, the inquisitions perpetrated by the Renaissance Church, the wars of religion in 17th century Europe, etc. But, in point of fact, the most awful violations of human rights in all recorded history have occurred in the modern secular world and have been the product of atheistic governments, their leaders, and their fellow travelers. Think of Pol Pot in Cambodia, Idi Amin in Uganda, Stalin and Marxism in Soviet Russia, Hitler in the concentration camps of World War II. At the Nuremberg war, trial, criminal, <laughs> war crimes trials of the Nazi leaders, Justice Robert H. Jackson, chief counsel for the United States, declared, no half century ever witnessed slaughter on such a scale, such cruelties and inhumanities, such wholesale deportations of people into slavery, such annihilations of minorities. The terror of Torquemada pales before the Nazi Inquisition. So terror of Torquemada was religious inquisition and persecution. I think it was about the death of uh, approximately 2,000 people. If history teaches anything, it teaches that without God and the anticipation of a last judgment, human beings readily fall into a demonic condition. Society thinks only of itself and its advantages as it destroys all others for its own benefit. The individual without God. The non-Christian without God is not only lost in eternity, he or she lives a life on earth without purpose or ultimate significance. The Christian, however, has promised that all things work together for good to them who love God, Romans 8, 28. No such promise exists for the unbeliever. It follows inevitably that for a purpose of life, nothing is more practical than believing in God. But belief in God, in a God, is not enough. The Bible warns, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder, James 2. 
The lesson here is that mere belief in God is never sufficient. One must believe in the true God, the God who revealed himself in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. His apostles declared, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name than that of Jesus Christ under heaven, given among men, whereby we must be saved, Acts 4. And since Jesus Christ was and is God incarnate, history offers empirical, scientific evidence of God's existence by the way of the presence, the miraculous life, and the resurrection from the dead of Jesus Christ. Anthony Flew, an atheist who became a theist shortly before his death, expanded philosopher John Wisdom's parable of the gardener. Once upon a time, two explorers came upon a clearing in the jungle. In the clearing were growing many flowers and many weeds. One explorer says, some gardener must tend this plot. The other disagrees. There is no gardener. So they pitch their tents and set a watch. No gardener is ever seen. But perhaps he is an invisible gardener. So they set up a barbed wire fence. They electrify it. They patrol with bloodhounds. For they remember how H.G. Wells, the invisible man, could be both smelt and touched, though he cannot be seen. But no shrieks ever suggest that some intruder has received a shock. No movements of the wire ever betray an invisible climber. The bloodhounds never give cry, yet still the believer is not convinced. But there is a gardener, invisible, intangible, insensible to electric shocks. A gardener who has no scent and makes no sound. A gardener who comes secretly to look after the garden which he loves. At last, the skeptic despairs. But what remains of your original assertion? Just how does what you call an invisible, intangible, eternally elusive gardener differ from an imaginary gardener or even from no gardener at all? This is a devastating, unanswerable argument for all the religions of the world except Christianity. The Christian gospel asserts on the basis of solid eyewitness evidence that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. 2 Corinthians 5. And the same incarnate God put his personal stamp of approval on the entire Old Testament. Said he, the scripture cannot be broken. John 10. It follows, therefore, that the universe has its needed explanation in the transient, transcendent work and word of its creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1. All right, let's close with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wisdom that you give us, wisdom that shames the proud and shuts up the argument of the wise, that in your Holy Spirit, you have given us uh, the truth. We pray, O Lord, that you would continue to give us wisdom, that you would sustain us each day, that we may give an answer for the hope that you have given to us that we may, with love and, and respect and honor, uh, give a defense for the faith. May we uh, absorb this knowledge being passed down to us by one of our brothers in the faith, that uh, we too may make good use of this, not only for our own personal convictions, but also to help others who question and wonder of, of your existence. Grant us endurance and patience, dear Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.